You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 25. You'll find this on page 934 of the Pew Bible. That's 934, page of the Bible, and we're looking together at chapter 25 of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Well, as you remember, arrested in Jerusalem, Paul was sent to Caesarea to stand before the governor Felix. With his wife Drusilla, Felix listened to Paul preach, but they rejected the gospel. The spirit had been moving, his conscience had been pricked, but his heart turned away from the Lord. And with that, we assume his season of grace ended. The door of salvation for Felix and Drusilla was forever shut. And oh, how often he had conversed with Paul, but as far as we know, the spirit withdrew his influence. Felix and his wife, in effect, had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. So God gave them over to their own desires. 
He left them to themselves. And there is no greater danger in this world than to be forsaken like that. We see it happening all around us. Today we see hordes of people being given up to their sinful desires. And they have no clue that it's a judgment from God. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, who assumed the post of governor. And the historian Josephus tells us that the emperor Nero appointed Festus to this position. We know very little about this man, except that he was somewhat similar to Felix. He displayed the same kind of desire in an attempt to curry the favor of the Jews. And yet under his administration, we have to admit, crime was curtailed and peace was restored. But apparently he died in the second or third year after taking office, so his service was short-lived. He had barely arrived when the Jews took advantage of his inexperience. They laid out their case against Paul, urging for a trial in Jerusalem. And if successful, of course, this would give them a clear shot to assassinate him. Forty men had taken a vow to fast until they had killed him. Now, to be fair, I have to say, Festus did have a better reputation than his predecessor. While pragmatic and inexperienced, he had been fairly just and administratively effective. There is little to suggest that this man was as brutal or cruel as Governor Felix. But he was in the Roman system, and he wasn't above crass political ambition. And under the tremendous pressure of the zealous Jews, he would most likely bend. After all, his job was to keep the peace, and that might require compromise. So naturally, he wanted to get off on the right foot and do the Jews a favor. So as something of a concession, Festus was willing to consider the trial being moved to Jerusalem. Do you wish, Paul, to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And I want us to understand something here. The governor's question was essentially his decision. He was not asking Paul to make a choice. The trial was to be moved. Perhaps Festus wanted more evidence or testimony, we're not told, but he did hope to curry their favor. And he only had the bare-bone facts of the case. He had just arrived on the scene, and he knew, Paul knew, that if he was tried in Jerusalem, the Jews would find some way to kill him. And he also knew the danger, not only to his person, but to the gospel. He wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't opposed to being punished for a crime if he had committed one, but he knew that he was innocent. And he also did not want to dishonor Christ unnecessarily. He didn't want the spread of the gospel to be hindered, and a Jerusalem trial likely meant his death and a blow to the gospel. And if he was going to die, the apostle wanted to go for the right reason. He wished to be spent for the kingdom, not for some trumped-up charge by zealous Jews. So he appealed to Caesar, 
and he exercised his right of Roman citizenship. And this civic privilege was so absolute that not even a provincial governor could deny it. And of course, an appeal did not come without risks. As you can imagine, the emperor had the final judgment. There's no appeal. But Paul was willing to take the risk of appearing before Nero, of all people, than appearing before the Jews. At least then he'd be fulfilling the assignment of the Lord Jesus Christ in testifying in Rome. And for his part, you can imagine that Festus was probably relieved by Paul's appeal to Caesar. Because the last thing he wanted or needed was a major disturbance with the Jewish zealots. This took the matter out of his hands and away from his jurisdiction. So Festus said at the end, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And is it not ironic that a faithful Jew had to appeal to a pagan emperor to be protected from those who called themselves the seed of Abraham? I think sometimes the harshest and most cruel treatment can be endured in the church. That's sad. The devil's aim is to undermine the work of Christ and the salvation of souls. We know that. And what better way than by infiltrating the church to harass the sheep? He employs hypocrites to disrupt the fellowship and to bring in disrepute. And it happens all the time, tragically. But Paul was wise. He knew that Jesus would overrule all of this for good, and he was ready and willing and eager to bear witness to Christ in Rome. And so may not you and I conclude that this is an example of true saving faith? Paul, he didn't know what to expect from the pagan emperor at Rome. History tells us, I don't need to remind you perhaps, Nero was both proud and cruel, and vicious, and sadistic. He was one of the worst of tyrants, and he was opposed to Christianity. So what was Paul thinking? Which was worse, Nero or the Jews? I think it's like the proverbial jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. But our Lord's words must have been reverberating in his thoughts, and he believed Jesus, he trusted providence, he knew he was to testify in Rome, so he was willing to risk everything to fulfill that divine appointment. How many of us would do the same? I think it's an expression of sincere faith. I think he was trusting in the word of Christ, He might die in Rome. As a matter of fact, tradition tells us that he was beheaded there. But Paul didn't shrink back. He pressed on in obedience to Jesus Christ, and I think Scripture identifies that as an expression of sincere faith. Because you see, true faith yields obedience to the commands. True faith trembles at the threats. We know they're true. And true faith embraces those wonderful promises of God. Narrowly, you and I in our confession define such faith as receiving and resting upon Christ. How many times have we heard that? But more broadly, 
We can describe it as Paul did, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. In other words, it's the Christian's obedience that consists of faith. Or said differently, the exercise of faith that expresses itself in acts of obedience. It's found in believers who believe and adopt and embrace the gospel, the obedience of faith. True faith, true saving faith, in other words, is not some shallow, fleeting emotion, however deeply felt. True faith is the commitment of wholehearted devotion. You're devoted to someone or to something. And I think this helps understand what Paul means when he tells the Thessalonians about those who do not obey the gospel. Doesn't that sound strange? Those who do not obey the gospel. He had been talking about the coming judgment at the end of the age. And he tells those Thessalonians that evildoers and persecutors will be punished. So far, so good. And in vivid detail, he describes the scene at the second coming of Christ. And I quote, he said, When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But wait a minute, isn't the gospel about free grace? Isn't it about belief and salvation, Paul? Wouldn't it be better to say the wicked who do not believe the gospel? Well, not if he's referring to the obedience of faith, the faith that truly saves. It's the type of faith that James refers to when he distinguishes the living faith from that which is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. A believer's obedience, in other words, is evidence of a faith that is sincere. We're saved by Christ's merit, and salvation is proved by saving faith. Obedience of faith. And that kind of faith is authenticated by sincere attempts at obedience. And this is how we demonstrate our gratitude to, for, to Jesus. Humanly speaking, Paul's situation appeared bleak. Things looked grim for him. But he believed that an appeal to Caesar would be an opportunity for the gospel, and this was an act of faith. It was evidence of a true, sincere, obedient faith. Listen to what the apostle says to those who were tempted to let go of the faith. Hebrews chapter 10. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now there's an interesting phrase. The writer says here that true faith enables the Christian to preserve his soul. Even though we lose everything else, by faith we're able to save our souls. And of course, you and I both know that it's only by God's grace that we can believe anyway. The Spirit must change the heart and implant faith and give perseverance. 
As the psalmist says, our help is in the name of the Lord, but just how God keeps and preserves his children is through faith. There's a direct link between a believer's faith and the preservation of his or her soul. Or put differently, let's put it this way. God preserves us by means of a faith that perseveres. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, so that in this mysterious, supernatural way, God works in so that you and I can work out. I don't know how he does it. His spirit enables us not only to do his will, but to even want to do his will. The fact that you're in church this morning is a fruit of his spirit, enabling you to want to get up, get dressed, get to church. The Apostle Peter says the same thing. By God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is sovereign in preserving, and man is responsible in persevering. Faith enables you and I to trust in an invisible God for life in an invisible world by promises that the world rejects and the flesh finds difficult to believe. And such faith is what motivated the martyrs to sacrifice their lives for Christ. It's unbelief that says, spare the flesh, and it's true faith that says, save the soul. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? How tragic is it? that an unbeliever gains nothing and loses everything. Isn't that true? He gains nothing and he loses everything. As believers, we're convinced of the reality both of heaven and hell, and faith believes that the losses of this life, whatever they may be, cannot possibly compare to losing salvation. Faith is persuaded of the goodness and the truth and the beauty of spiritual things that heaven is not only real, but it's desirable. And that eternal life is not only true, but it's worthwhile. I'll go to Rome. I'll lose my head. I have eternal life, says Paul. By nature, you and I are so prone to love and value this fading world far too much because it's impossible for a non-believer to set his affections on the invisible world. Only by faith would we part with everything if need be for the sake of Jesus. And it's only by faith and a heart that's changed by the Spirit that we would embrace Jesus. And that's exactly why Paul appealed to Caesar and he was willing to see Rome. So I think this has something to teach us about the importance of God's promises, doesn't it? He takes great delight in pledging to bless us long before he does so. 
His heart, God's heart is so tender, so affectionate to his children that he can't keep silent. He gets excited. I'm doing that reverently. It's as if God can't wait to the accomplishment. He has to tell us beforehand. Isaiah 42, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I think God takes pleasure in seeing our expectation grow over time. He wants to give us something that we can grab hold of by faith in prayer. And when he makes a pledge, any pledge, it's as if he makes himself debtor to us. Of course, this is not because we're worthy. It's not because we're somehow deserving. It's only because of who God is, a God of steadfast, enduring love. I've been learning more and more as I grow older that God loves us and binds himself to us through his promises, and it's an amazing thing. He has never made a promise that he didn't keep. He never will. Psalm 89, verse 34, I'll not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. He doesn't change his mind. He will never break his word. He cannot deny himself. Once he makes a promise, it is as good as done, an absolute certainty. This is why, and many believers seem to be confused on this point, this is why the Holy Spirit was given to Old Testament believers. He was given to them. The cross was absolutely certain. The Old Testament believers' regeneration was based upon the fulfillment of God's promise. And that's why it's useful and important to plead his promises in prayer. Do you do this? Lord, you promised to hear the desire of the afflicted and to strengthen their hearts. I'm lonely. I'm afflicted. Please fulfill your pledge and strengthen my heart. Or again, Father, you promised to hear the desires and to deliver those who are afflicted. I'm going through deep waters right now. Grant me your grace in this time of need. You promised to give your spirit to everyone whom you call to yourself. Well, you've called me to yourself, and I believe in you. Fill me afresh with your spirit. Father, you promised abundant eternal life to all who believe in Jesus. I trust him, Lord. I'm having a hard time, but I trust him. Please fill me with that life and the joy of your salvation. And God delights in hearing his children frame their petitions according to his word. It pleases him. Don't just admire these promises. Use them. We're going to sing a song in a minute. It says this in part. Come, my soul, with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself bids you to pray and will never turn away. You're coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much.
I hope you believe that. Of course, having said all that, let us never be surprised when answers are delayed. Scripture and experience teach that there may be a period between promise and fulfillment. The promise itself is God's way of assuring us that he means to do us good. But more often than not, for reasons known only to him, he delays the fulfillment of his promise. Have you experienced that? Let me tell you something. He pledged to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, right? Abraham was 75 years old when he made that promise. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So no less than 25 years passed before even one of his offspring existed. A quarter of a century. The delay taught Abraham to exercise faith, to trust in the promise. And of course, that promise was not ultimately fulfilled until the passage of centuries In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, came into the world. And its final fulfillment will be at the end of time when the multitude that nobody can number will be before the throne of grace. And they'll cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So Abraham never saw the ultimate or complete fulfillment of the promise. God delayed his realization and continues to delay it to the last soul is gathered. Well, why would God delay the fulfillment of his promise? How is this helpful? Why doesn't he act now? I've been to the hospital. I've heard the question. Why doesn't he make good on his word now? I fear, I've heard, that he has not chosen me. He's not blessed me. He's not regenerated me. Well, the Bible teaches that the reason for God's delay is not because he's reluctant to bless. Jeremiah 9 says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He's not only willing to bless his children, he delights in blessing them. It's not because he's reluctant. And God does not delay because he somehow is ignorant of the best or most suitable time. Scripture says that God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. He knows the best time, the wisest course, and the most suitable conditions. He doesn't delay because after so many millennia, he has somehow grown forgetful. He's omniscient, after all. He knows all things. He sees every sparrow. He numbers every hair of your head. And it says he remembers his covenant forever. He will never, ever forget his promise. He has pledged to make us fellow heirs with Christ. And he doesn't delay because he's weak or incapable. Power belongs to him. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Well, then why? Why does God delay? Why do we have to wait for the fulfillment? Well, the simple and comprehensive answer is simply this, for his own glory and our good. 
He delays in part for his own glory, which is magnified in the delay. It says he's made everything beautiful in its time. In his sovereign providence, he brings everything in due season at the perfect time. He gives life, he inflicts death. He plants, he roots up. He kills, he heals. He humbles, he exalts, and his timing is perfect. It magnifies his glory. And he delays in part for our own good with which he's concerned. You see, God will test our faith to see if we can trust him and his word. He will wait to see if we're willing to embrace his promise until the blessing comes. He knows what you're made of. He knows what you will do or won't do. He wants you and I to see what we'll do and what's the nature of our hearts. He wants you and I to see the proof of our faith. I didn't think I could do that. I never would have done that 10 years ago. And what's amazing to me is that he'll supply the grace needed so that we can wait. True faith, true saving faith lays hold of the blessings even at a distance of many centuries. It can make the joy of future blessings seem like the joy of present realities. Heaven on earth, you've heard that saying. We can love heaven. We can rejoice in Christ. We can fellowship with the saints as if we were there. And isn't that the beauty of faith? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God wants you and I to trust him at all times and not just when things are easy. Do you know what happens to a child to whom everything he wants is given? What happens? He's spoiled. We see it. He becomes spoiled rotten. He lacks gratitude. He exhibits little trust. He just expects things to be fulfilled. He wants it. He thinks he deserves it. No, God delays to help us learn how to trust him through difficulties. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Where did that come from? From a man who had learned to trust in the word of God. Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. And at least for a time, he lost his wife. But he persevered in faith. And when all else failed, he believed the word of God. This is what Adam failed to do in the garden. He trusted the devil's word, not God's. What is it that you're waiting for? Which promise are you pleading before the throne? Which loved one are you still praying for with no apparent fruitfulness? Has God delayed his response to you? Don't give up. Persevere. He's testing your faith. Like a good farmer, you are to wait patiently in every season under all kinds of weather. You show me a good farmer with a large crop, I'll show you a patient man. He knows how to work and persevere. He's familiar with hoping and praying, never knowing what's going to happen. 
He's learned over the years to depend on the Lord who made this promise long ago. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And like good farmers, we are to patiently persevere in faith, trusting the Lord. And in the best way, at the right time, he will fulfill as his fatherly wisdom deems best. For it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign and infinitely wise, that you are a gracious and benevolent God, that your fatherly wisdom is best. Teach us to wait upon you and to pray, pleading your promises before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.